Let's pray. Lord, it is our delight, week after week, to come together to assemble as the gathered church. And we know that your church is gathering all over the world today, and many have already. And for hours and hours, their services have been over. Our dear brothers in Uganda, for example. And so we praise you. Lord, I, I pray that you would, as we think about the church week after week in this series, that we would not be ashamed of anything that you say about your church or require of your church, but that rather we would have hearts that are completely under the sway of your spirit, that we would be eager to follow you wherever you lead, knowing that everywhere you lead is the right path. And so much of the Bible is, is so encouraging to us and uplifting. And there are, on the other hand, many hard sayings of Christ that he expected his disciples to receive and believe, and he expects us to receive and believe. And this morning is one of those times. So we pray, Lord, that you would cause our hearts to rejoice in what we hear, and there will be much here to rejoice over. Give us hearts that are willing and eager for the glory of Jesus and for our own joy, and maybe even for the salvation of some who are here and don't yet know you. And so, Father, we commit this time to your care again and ask you to bless it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. If you're visiting with us this morning, we welcome you. Uh, this sermon may be a little different than what you're expecting as you come to visit a local church. You may be looking for something that is very um, happy and, uh, and fear-conquering or self-esteem-boosting. I don't know what you're looking for. Uh, what I have to give you is the Word of God. And so week after week, we study the Word of God, and we generally do it verse by verse. And that's what we're doing this morning. In a different way of looking at it, we are also in the middle of a study, as you heard me pray, on the church, because I believe, and the elders of this church believe, that too many Christians have an exceedingly low opinion of the local church, and it shouldn't be that way. We should have a high opinion of the local church. And we have said from the beginning that outside the Trinity itself, the thing that God loves more than anything else is, fill in the gap, the church. She is God's most precious possession. And he is jealous for her. He is protective of her. And he loves her more than we can fathom. And so when we have texts of Scripture like this, we remind ourselves that those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, as uh, Keith read this morning a little while ago. And so if you have your Bible handy, let's stand together and read Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Hear the words of Jesus. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. These five verses are a weighty counterbalance to the light, easy, non-confrontational, live-and-let-live Christian culture of our time where sin is rarely ever addressed in the church and, frankly, in our relationships in general. And I suspect it would be rather easy to demonstrate that many church-attending Christians don't even know that the doctrine of church discipline is a real thing, let alone that it is found in the Word of God and clearly taught in the passage that I just read and also in Luke 17. Perhaps an anecdotal piece of evidence would demonstrate this. Several years ago, many years ago now, uh, this issue of church discipline came up when my wife and I were trying to make a decision about what Christian college our oldest son would attend. I took it upon myself to make contact with every Christian, every evangelical church I could find around that college within a 10 to 15, I may have even pushed it out to a 20-mile radius. And I wanted to find for him a biblical church because, you know, how do you discern the will of God for you? How do you discern what college to go to? One of the ways you discern that is you find out what God's priorities are and you put those first. And so we told our son, you've probably heard me say this story before, but we told him, listen, you can pick any college you want to, but there is no biblical mandate for you to go to college. There is a biblical mandate for you to be involved in a solid, local, Bible-believing church. And so, pick a, pick a school, and we'll seek a church. If we can't find a church, you go to a different school. And that's actually how it worked out. And so here I was, calling all of these churches. The first thing I discovered is hardly anybody in, in those churches had a, an answering machine or were willing to call me back or anything. But there was one large Baptist church where the secretary answered the phone, and she agreed to let me ask her a list of questions. And so for the next few minutes, I asked her about uh, their preaching. Do, do you, do you, does the pastor preach expositionally? And she didn't know what that was, and, and that was okay. I, I kind of expected that. And what about the music? Uh, is, it, is it more like a, a concert, or is it actually congregational singing? And, and what is their understanding of the gospel? And she gave me her best rendition of the gospel, and it wasn't bad. And, and what about the kinds of ministry that they have? Because we wanted Josh to not only go to church, but be involved in the church. And how can he use his gifts and discover his gifts? And, and frankly, she was really sweet. She was a very kind, older woman uh, serving as a secretary of that church. And I could tell that some of the questions I uh, was asking to her, uh, of her were, were new to her. She had never heard these things before. 
And, uh, and that was okay. And eventually, however, I got to the final question and the one I was really after, and that is, um, does your church practice church discipline? To which, after a long and puzzled pause, she said, you mean, do we spank them? <laughs> I'm not making this up. Never, needless to say, we, uh, we sent our son off in a different direction. So glad he did. He found his wife there, and we have four grandbabies from that uh, wonderful relationship, it's, and which just proves that doing it God's way is best. And it serves as kind of an example, this story, of the ignorance that is in the church about this critical, imperative teaching of our Lord for the well-being of his church. It is, after all, his church, Right? his church. He's the one who built it. He's the one who purchased it with his own blood. He's the one who will someday deliver us from the world and usher us into the joy of his Father. And pastors are simply called upon to be the temporary agents of Christ's bride. We are his attendants. We are her attendants for the time being. Our job is to feed her and lead her and protect her. And so it's incumbent upon us who are in leadership in local churches to follow Jesus' essential instructions about everything he speaks about and everything he requires until he comes. As we learned last week, Jesus taught us that when a brother sins and does not soon afterwards take responsibility for it, Jesus says, someone needs to go talk to that brother or that sister. Somebody needs to go talk to them. In other words, the first step that Jesus prescribes for addressing sin in the local church is speak to him privately. Someone speak to him privately. And we learned last time that the person who takes on that responsibility to speak to the brother, pulled him aside, be careful to approach him, not with a judgmental spirit or with a harsh tone, but rather do it personally, do it uh, circumspectly, privately, tentatively, gently, and prayerfully. And we talked all about that last week. I'm not going to preach all of these things. In Jesus' instruction, however, this is step one. When your brother sins against you, and, and this, is, this is relevant for any kind of sin that's not being addressed by someone else, you know about it, you've seen it, you heard it, or at least you think you did, um, someone needs to talk to them. Someone needs to step in and take the risk. In Jesus' instruction, this is step one, and if your brother responds repentantly, Jesus says, you have won your brother. You have won your brother. End of story. Step one is where discipline begins and where it should always end. There should, I'll, I'll repeat this later today. There, will, there should be no reason why steps two, three, and four should ever be used. And I'll tell you why in a little while. But, but just remember this. As you're going, be gentle, be circumspect, be tentative, be prayerful, because the goal is to win your brother 
to restore him to the Lord and to anyone that he may have offended in the body of Christ. And if this happens, if this happens, there's no need for anyone else in the church to even know it took place. You don't go around, you don't even go around rejoicing in it. It should be treated as if it never happened. But what should be done when the person who sins chooses not to repent when confronted? What should a Christian do when loving confrontation meets rejection? Well, on a practical note, I would say, you're thinking, we go to step two. I would say, cool your jets. Don't be too quick to go to step two. Repeat step one. And repeat it again. And repeat it again. Don't be too hasty. This isn't about punishment. This is about winning your brother. And we need to put the, 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 the needs of our sinning brother above our own desire to bring this issue to a resolution. This is not an adventure for you to experience. This is not some new spiritual thrill for you. Rather, this, the goal here is to restore your brother, even if it costs you much. Be patient. Repeat this again and again. Look for any reason to stop the process. Any good biblical reason. But if those attempts fail, Jesus does urge us to move to step two, which is, and you'll see this in your notes, number two, ask for help from others. Now let me qualify that. Don't ask for help from everyone else in the church. Don't get on the phone and start gossiping Try to keep the circle of knowledge about this sin as small as possible. Because you love this brother. You don't want him to have some stigma about him if, if you're having to deal with this sin. You don't want other people to know about it. Protect him. Protect the sinner. And there are cases when loving confrontation is met with resistance. And sometimes that happens simply because the person is shocked that someone actually has the nerve to come and address their sin. I mean, this is rare, unfortunately, rare in the Western church and, in fact, the Eastern churches I've been to as well. Sometimes there's resistance because the person confronting him doesn't have all the facts and is attempting to deal with the issue in an unbiblical manner. That happens. You find out that the person who sinned was not the accused, but the one who's making the accusations. If, however, a true brother has committed a real sin, his resistance should eventually crumble before the authority of God's word so that he can be restored. And that's, what, that, that's a note for us, right? If you ever get to a place where someone confronts you in your sin, you should have the attitude that says, I should consider this. I should consider this. Occasionally, however, loving confrontation is met not merely by resistance, but with outright rejection, unjust rejection. In fact, sometimes it will be met with hostility. What do you do then? Well, Jesus offers clear instruction. Look at verse 16. We're in Matthew 18. Look at verse 16. Half of it is on the previous page in my Bible. Here Jesus says, but if he does not listen... 
Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he does not listen, now the word listen here is really just a euphemism for the word repent. If he doesn't repent, that is, a verbal, if he doesn't give a verbal acknowledgement that he has indeed sin, accompanied by a request for forgiveness from the appropriate person or people, if he's not willing to admit his guilt and ask for forgiveness, the Lord commands us, listen, commands us to do a very, very difficult thing. You've got to go find one or two. Not an endless number. Keep the circle small. One or two, as deemed necessary. One, if at all possible. Or two, to help you. To help you communicate to this brother. Not only that it was sin, he no doubt already knows that, but that God has given a clear prescription for how to deal with your sin, and it's wonderful. Your sin can be forgiven. Your sin can be cast as far as the east is from the west. Do you realize that when you sin, God doesn't not forget? You say, well, I thought the Bible says it, it, he forgets. No, 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 no. It's way better than that. He chooses not to remember it against you. And that's what we want. We want this brother to be utterly restored. And so you've got to find one or two others who will come and help you communicate. As Jesus says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact must be established. Now it's important to note here that Jesus' words are a direct quote from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 19.15 reads, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account... And, and by the way, this is referring to a formal judgment about a person's guilt, right? So a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. In Matthew 26.59-61 through 61, we read of Jesus' trial where he would be condemned and executed, right? And this is what we read. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. In other words, they couldn't find two people to agree. They knew the law. They were experts in the law. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Clearly a misunderstanding. It may be an intentional misunderstanding. But it was two witnesses. And that's what they were waiting for. You see, this has always been God's way of ensuring that innocent people are not wrongfully disciplined and judged. Now, it didn't work for Jesus because the, the very ones who should have been protecting him were the ones who were con, uh, accusing him and hoping to condemn him. But this was designed by God as an insurance that innocent people would not be wrongfully disciplined or judged. One person's testimony is never, su is never sufficient when someone is being accused and the accused says, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. 
And the principle here is articulated in Proverbs 18, 17. The first person to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. And when others are brought into the issues, listen to this. This, this, this can twist and turn in all kinds of directions. But sometimes when others are brought into the issue, sometimes you'll discover that the accuser doesn't really have all the facts. And he was trying to get a brother to confess something he didn't do. And when other witnesses are brought in, they discover it. And they look at the accusing brother and say, hey, chill. Stand down. This is, this is not good. We, we need to talk to you. We need to talk to you. And sometimes when it comes down to the word of one against another, the witnesses may need to do some detective work to discern who's right and who's wrong, to discover the truth. Usually, however, witnesses are brought to confirm the person's unrepentant attitude toward their obvious sinful behavior. In other words, this is not a person who say, is saying he didn't do it. He's saying, I did it and I don't care. I did it and, you, you know, it's a free country. Um, and so even then, before a judgment can be made, there ought to be two people at least who witness the reality that this person has indeed sinned and he is absolutely unrepentant. Now having said all that, let me take a moment to speak to, this is, this is really going to sound like a random left turn. I want to speak to the married women of Calvary Bible Church. Over the years, I've had a number of occasions when I and or the elders have had to address the issue of domestic abuse in the home. And there have even been occasions when it was happening, not just with outsiders who come for help, but people who are inside the church and, and nobody knows about it, it's hidden. Usually with outside people, they come and, and uh, we're able to deal with it in in a different manner, because certainly we can't, um, we can't kick them out of the church. They're not part of the church, so church discipline doesn't apply. Evangelism applies. It's absolutely shocking to realize how frequently this sin plays out in the homes of professing Christians. And so, ladies, I feel compelled every time I talk about this issue to say something to you. And I want you to listen carefully, and I want your husbands to listen carefully. Your husband is called to be the spiritual head of your household, but he never has the right to hit you, slap you, spank you, threaten you, and manipulate you with fear. Never. Such behavior is not biblical. He may say, you're just unsubmissive. No, 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 no. This is not biblical. You know what it is? It's evil. It is evil. I mean, I don't know that I could use stronger terms or want you to hear it more strongly. If I could find a term that was stronger than what I'm saying, I'd use it. And I want you to know that this teaching of Jesus that we are discussing is for your protection, ladies, if your husband is abusing the limited, delegated authority that God has entrusted to him, you have the responsibility to confront him and to call him to repentance in a manner as we discussed last week, carefully, tentatively, graciously, gently, prayerfully. 
But if he responds badly, if the man who is the head of your household is harming you and your children, you have the God-given duty to appeal to the other men in your life who were also called to feed, lead, and protect you, namely the elders of your church. That's why we're here. Jesus' teaching on loving confrontation is designed to protect you and to bring all of the biblical means that God has prescribed to rescue and restore your marriage. And much more could be said on this point, but I think you, you get the drift. In our day, this is so common and almost always invisible. And I don't want there to be a lack of clarity at Calvary Bible Church. Fair enough? Just say amen, and I'll relax a little. Okay, now back to generality. Back to vague generalities, okay? What happens if I get other people involved in loving confrontation and he or she rejects them as well? Well, according to Jesus, there are still more steps. Step three is, number three in your notes, ask for help from the church. Again, this is not ask everybody for help. There's a procedure here, verse 17. Verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. The point of telling it to the church is simply to mobilize the troops so that everyone he knows in the body of Christ is pleading with him to repent. We all want his restoration. We all want to see her reconciled to God and the people that he or she has sinned against. We all want him rescued from the consequences of his sin, and so together we as an entire church begin seeking him out. Again, not, not angry, but gentle and circumspect with much prayer. We begin seeking him out and, and pleading with him. We show up at the doorstep. Um, we send him notes. Um, uh, the elders, in the meantime, are sending them certified mail. We love you. Please. The Lord's Supper is coming up in five weeks. Please, before then, because that's, that's if we have to do discipline, that's when we do it then. Notice what Jesus says next. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then what? By the way, the word even here is intended to communicate astonishment on the part of Jesus. Jesus is astonished at this possibility. If he refuses to listen, even to the church, it's, it's inconceivable to Jesus that a professing believer would, would, would resist and reject the pleadings of the whole church. But if he does, we have another choice. We have no other choice but to complete the discipline process by moving to step four. And step four is treat him like an unbeliever. Or the way Jesus says it here, look again in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Wayne Mack points out that Gentiles and tax collectors were the kinds of people with whom Jews had no social or religious interaction. 
They were not considered part of the covenant people of Israel because of their lack of obedience to God's law. And so when someone in the church persists in living in unbelief, blatant, rebellious unbelief, the church is called to put him out of the community of Christ. Practically speaking, this should be done by an announcement to the whole church. God's people should take the instruction and apply it. And the instruction is that from this day forward, this man or this woman is out of the community of Christ. They are outside of the community of Christ. Not just this church, but every church. Now, obviously, we don't have any authority over every church. But you know what's wonderful? The, the position we're in at Calvary Bible Church if a person is disciplined here and they just run and they go to another church in the community that is a like-minded church, church with us, you know what will happen? They'll call us. Hey, we've got somebody here. Everything okay? No. Send them back. And uh, I, I can't tell you stories, but we've had amazing things happen when other churches honor the discipline. One church honors the discipline of the other church. God's people should be instructed not to fellowship, worship, or even share a meal with that person until such time as he repents and is formally restored. You probably have questions about that. We could talk about it later. We can't cover every scenario here. We actually see the Apostle Paul obeying the Lord's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says to the church of Corinth, where there was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife. I mean, blatant immorality, and they were bragging about how liberal they are, what kind of liberties they have, even though they're Christians. And here's what Paul says to them. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has committed this sin, as though I were present with you in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Notice the goal of restoration. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of the world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world as if that were possible. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. It's really strong. If there's any ambiguity about what Jesus was calling for, Paul clears it all up. I wrote in my letter not to associate with them. And beloved, I know this is a hard teaching. And some of you have never heard a sermon like this in your life. But listen very carefully. If your brother is in sin and he's unrepentant, and he's rebelling against the clear teaching of the word of God, what does love require? This is the most loving thing that you can do for your brother or sister who's in danger of being utterly shipwrecked in his faith. This is drastic measures for rescue, not for alienation. The motive is always love, 
The goal is always restoration. The ultimate end is always the glory of God. And I can tell you from personal experience that God uses obedience to this teaching to bring some people to a saving knowledge of Jesus. You know how people come to Christ? God exposes their sin. And you know what? Some people are more resistant to that being exposed and dealt with than others. And this is one of the ways people are brought to faith. It's a hard way. But it is the Lord's prescription. And it has also been my experience that sometimes when a Christian dares to take the risk of obedience to the Lord and brings loving confrontation to bear on the sinful man or woman's life, it's often this procedure is, um, though it's unusual, it sometimes binds the friendship between the two in a way that exceeds anything that they enjoyed before. We've, over the years, have had a lot of college kids come to our house because we've had, well, we, we have a lot of college kids in our house. And, um, and there have been a, a few occasions where a kid would come over and we're loving and serving them and, and something, something gets said that is blatantly sinful. And I just look for an opportunity while they're there to pull them aside and say, hey, brother, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad that you're friends with our son, our sons. And uh, we love the fact that you've come over to our house and you are welcome. Can, can we just talk about what you said a little while ago? Um, do you think that was edifying? If so, how do you, how do you think that edified um, my children and me as their dad? And you can just see their head go down. And I can tell you, I haven't had to do that very often, but the few times I have, those dear Christian brothers sputter and stammer, and eventually they come out and say, you're right, and what I said was wrong. And then they say something like this, no one has ever called me out on this before. Thank you. And if you haven't had that experience, it's probably not because there's not sinners around you. <laughs> if I'm around you, there's a sinner around you. <laughs> it may just be that you're so fearful of talking. You know, I don't like it either. I, 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 well, I won't tell you why. But I've got my own weaknesses. I don't like, I like people to like me. And I want them to be mad at me. And so you resist, you resist God's spirit who is nudging you to speak. And it's just as sinful to not speak as it is to speak sinfully when God is telling you to speak. There are indeed cases where the erring brother or sister responds badly to loving confrontation, but that doesn't relieve us of the duties that love requires for that person's well-being. It's never easy. It's never, I, at least I have found it to be never easy. But neither does the Lord leave us the option to not do it. In fact, Jesus himself has promised that he will be with us. He will comfort us and he will be the standing authority in the room when it happens. He promises 
that he who has authority over heaven and earth will be with you. And that brings us to the last, well, the fifth point. Four, is it four or five? Five? Rest in the comfort of Christ. Rest in the comfort of Christ. He's not asking you to do something you can't do and not something that you can do with authority and confidence because he's there. Look at verses 18 through 20. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my, na my name, there I am among them. Or the NAS says, there I am in the midst. What's, what's he mean? Um, well, you remember that we talked about the issue of binding and loosing back in the early part of the series on the church where we looked at Matthew 16. And I'm not going to re-preach all that. Suffice it to say that Jesus has not only given the church the command and responsibility to confront sin, he has also given the church the authority to confront sin in the way that he prescribes and in only the way that he prescribes with all of the limits. Contrary to popular opinion, verses 19 and 20 have nothing to do with prayer meeting except when that prayer is taking place among the people who are pleading with God for wisdom about what to do with this brother who just will not repent of their sin or this sister who will not repent of their sin. Lord, we don't want to take the next step. People are going to misunderstand. This is not about prayer meeting. It's about loving confrontation. It's about church discipline, if you will. And when Jesus speaks of binding and loosing, he means that the church has the authority to close the doors of fellowship on a sinning brother or to open them again when he repents. It's, the, it's a heartbreaking thing to have to tell a sinning brother or a sister in the church that the doors of, of fellowship are hereby closed to you. You may not take part in the Lord's Supper. You may not fellowship as if you were in the community when indeed you have been put out. But this is God's way. You say, well, that's hard. And it is. So is spanking your children. It's hard. Uh, but they will not surely die, as the King James says. <laughs> and how about this one? He who withholds the rod hates his son. Now, I suspect that some of you are hearing this for the first time and maybe thinking, wow, I mean, this is shocking. This is even scary. It seems harsh. And you might be asking yourself, come on now, I mean, how often do people in this church actually make it to step four? Well, that's an interesting question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> and so as I was writing the sermon this week, rewriting it, I put some thought into that question, and I just scoured my memory as best as my memory still serves me, which isn't great, but <laughs> these are big events, and so I think I remember them all. So let's do the math. I'll just give you two numbers. I've been here for 25 years. That's the first number. How many times have we taken a person to step four? 
in church discipline? Four. You know what that means? Not very often. This doesn't happen very often. Most of the time, people who get confronted about their sin, they repent. They repent. It's only those who don't repent and then don't repent and then don't repent again at each level. I mean, you've got to be really, really rebellious to get taken all the way to step four because the elders are out, the church body is out for your restoration. We are for you. We want you to be restored to Christ. You're out of fellowship with Christ. It will go badly. It's like being in a lifeboat after the Titanic goes down and one of the brothers jumps ship and you're pleading with him, get back in the boat, get back in the boat. You're going to die out there. You're going to die out there. I don't want to get back in the boat. People bug me. You're weird and you, you're always yelling at me to get back in the boat. It feels legalistic. And so we take desperate measures. We send people to dive into the water to drag them back, and they fight. You wrap a rope around them, and you drag them. This is the image that comes to my mind when we're talking about discipline. James says it's like rescuing a brand from the fire, Jude says. 25 years only four people have made it to the fourth step. No, I mean, not that, should, that should be some kind of ambition. <laughs> but you know what? It's a really good thing. It's a really good thing that only four people in 25 years have been brought to step four. And you know what else? Every time the elders of this church have had to take that last step, we didn't want to. And we agonized. And I can tell you that in all four cases, by the time this church body heard about it, it had been months and months of pleading and laboring and weeping and praying. We didn't want to make that final judgment. We were encouraged to do so, however, by Jesus' final words. Wherever two or three of you are gathered in my, main, my name to make the decision about putting someone out of the fellowship, I'm with you. Don't ever doubt. If you're doing it my way, I'm with you. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, and I'm bringing all of that authority into this prayer meeting. Make the call. Make the decision. Do the hard thing. It's as if Jesus is saying, brothers, I know this is difficult. I have given you a responsibility that's very, very difficult. But render the verdict. Make the call for that sinner's good. And know that you are not alone. I am with you. Rest in me. Rest in me. This is my doing. I told you to do this. And one more thing. I want to share with you this morning for your encouragement. What really amazed me as I answered that first question, how many, as I was writing this message and kind of thinking back over who those people were and how many there were, of those four people, 
that we had to, to close the door of fellowship to regarding step four as a public um, manifestation of their sin. Can you guess how many of the four repented? Are you ready for this? All of them. All of them. Right, Frank? Joe, wherever you are? Charlie? All of them. One of them resisted for eight years until the Lord arrested his or her heart and, rep and stood here publicly and was restored. So, we have four that we put out and we have four that we brought back in. And one of them came back twice. And that was bittersweet and wonderful. What does this tell us, oh, beloved? This is what it tells us. God's way is always the best way. It's like children talking about the discipline their father just meted out, and one of the older kids says to the younger kids, listen, dad's doing what's right. This is good. I've never heard any of my older kids say that, actually, but... <laughs> You want a scripture to kind of put the cherry on top when it comes to teachings like this? The author of Proverbs 3 says this, lean not on your own understanding. <laughs> Sometimes, children, you're just going to have to trust your dad. Just trust me. You don't know. I know. You don't have the authority. I do have the authority. You don't know what's best. I know what's best. Trust me. Trust your dad. And come home like the prodigal son. And when a person comes to their senses and says, what was I doing? What am I doing? This is what I will do. I will go home to my father. And I will say, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me your hired servant. And when he came to his father, he said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he could say, make me a hired servant, his father said, kill the fatted calf. Bring out the robe, bring out the ring, bring out the shoes. For this, my son, who was dead, and now he is alive. We've had the privilege as elders, you may, most of you may not know this, um, because it's, uh, these things are, are not things that we talk about very much. But over the 25 years, there have been a few men who we have had to address and say, and say, your repentance is, is, we want your repentance to last a whole year because there are some habits in your life that just need to be broken. And if you go for a whole year, it's going to be broken. And at the end of it, at the end of it, you know what we do? We kill the fatted calf. You say, metaphorically? Well, sort of. 
we go to Spring Creek or somewhere <laughs> and we order barbecue and we have a party and we say to the brother or sister, invite anyone you want to come to rejoice with you because we are rejoicing. And nobody else gets invited to that party, but I'll tell you what, to see that after reading this, you just got to wonder about the grace of God, the mercy of God, how glorious it is. Before we close this morning, I just want to make final, uh, one final appeal. And I said this in the beginning. Steps two, three, and four should never be necessary in the church. They should never be necessary. All of us should be walking in the light as John says in 1 John, all of us should have an open and honest attitude about our sin. And the fact, of it is, the fact is, all of us sin. Your pastor sins. All the elders, I can tell you, I know them well. They're all sinners. <laughs> but you know what? Sometimes we need help seeing it. And sometimes we need help defining it. And sometimes we need help repenting of it. And I just want to plead with you that if ever someone in the church comes to you or in your home, man, if your wife comes to you, wives, if your husband comes to you, because they're concerned about uh, some sin that they have witnessed, make it easy on them. Make it easy. And don't be proud. Let's not be a proud people. Let's be men and women who live in the kind of humility that is slow to defend self and quick to consider the possibility that perhaps the person confronting us is right. And perhaps they've been sent to you by a gracious God who loves you enough to address the issues of your heart that truly are a cancer to your soul. You know, King David made a lot of mistakes. But you remember that time Absalom was chasing him and he gathers up his friends and you know, the members of his court, and he's running through the valley, getting his people out, and Shimei comes, his enemy, and starts throwing rocks at, at David and throwing dust on their heads. I mean, he must have been pretty close. And the commander of David's army says, shall I go dispatch him, lop off his head? And you know what David said? Do you remember this? I'll never forget this. He said, no, perhaps the Lord has sent him. That's the attitude we need to have. Not, that's inconceivable. You totally misunderstood. You, I, I could never. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. As John Owen says, every believer has the seeds of every conceivable sin dormant in your heart and can burst into life at the most unexpected occasions. You are capable of all kinds of sin, and so am I. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, brothers, don't let any one of you have an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, that none of us would be deceived by the the deceitfulness of sin. 
On the other hand, when it comes your time to confront a member of your local church with sin, when loving confrontation is unavoidable, God promises his own authoritative presence with you. And for those who address the sin in a manner that's according to his word. Why does the Lord require the church to practice four stages of loving confrontation? You know why? Let me tell you why. It's because, listen carefully, the church is God's most precious possession. He loves her more than anything. And the one thing that can harm her, really harm her, really harm her, is sin. And so he tells us how to deal with sin. If there's cancer and there's a cure, shouldn't we apply the cure? And Jesus says there is a cancer. And it's in every church. And there is a cure that should be applied all the time for the glory of Christ and the purity of his church. And so I say, beloved, when loving confrontation meets rejection, an obedient church will not rest until there is joyful reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise you for your grace and your kindness. Sometimes your kindness, Lord, is a sharp, hot sauce for us to eat and drink. It feels sometimes bitter, but you give it to us to create within us a sweetness and a joyfulness that we could never know otherwise. We will never be a perfect church, but oh Lord, we want to be a healthy church. And we want to be a church that follows the lead and the rule of our master, the Lord Jesus, who loves us and who has given everything so that we can be rescued from our sin and brought home to the kingdom of light where there is salvation forever. Pray for any unbeliever in this room. Maybe today is the day that your Holy Spirit is opening their heart to see the reality of their need. Would you, O oh Father, arrest them? And would you put it in their heart to be willingly arrested by your saving mercy and grace? Lord, these things we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.